Today's episode is brought to you by the U.S. Bank Altitude Go Visa Signature Card. To learn more, visit usbank.com slash altitude go. Today's episode is brought to you by Wise, the account that helps you manage your money around the world, which is huge for travelers. I've been a customer and a fan for 10 years. The Wise account helps you send, spend, and receive in different currencies fast, and they do it all without hidden fees or exchange rate markups. This service has been so critical for me in my life as a traveler, as a nomad, as somebody living abroad, and you can join 16 million customers and learn how the Wise account can help you out on the road at wise.com slash travel. That's wise, W-I-S-E dot com slash travel, or download the app. This episode of Zero to Travel is brought to you by the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder with seven drive modes. The Pathfinder's available intelligent 4x4 is built for even the most epic journeys. Learn more at NissanUSA.com. Are there still wild places out there on this crowded planet? That's one of the many questions we tackle in today's show. We're talking a lot about spaces, physical spaces and how they impact your travel experience, whether it's a space that you choose to make a pilgrimage to, and that defines your journey, the energy of spaces, how a physical space can impact your creativity, how physical objects can inspire travel, and maybe this is something that you've experienced in your own life. And that was actually the case for my guest today who discovered a unique physical object in his home that inspired him to take off on his own adventures, and you're going to hear about his trek through multiple countries to explore these wild places to see if they were still wild and visit these physical structures that have a story to tell, have a story to share, and they're not your typical places. It's a wonderful chat. I hope you enjoy listening in on it. We've got that and so much more happening right now. So buckle up because you're coming on this ride with me today. Thanks for being here and welcome to the Zero to Travel podcast, my friend. You're listening to the Zero to Travel podcast, where we explore exciting travel-based work, lifestyle, and business opportunities, helping you to achieve your wildest travel dreams. And now your host, world wanderer and travel junkie, Jason Moore. Hey there, it's Jason with ZeroToTravel.com. Welcome to the show, my friend. Thank you so very much for hanging out with me, letting me bring a little travel into your ears today. This is the show to help you travel the world on your terms to fill your life with as much travel as you desire, no matter what your situation or experience. How you doing out there? I'm feeling a little spoiled lately because I've been hearing from so many of you via email, and I just love to open my email and get those stories from the community. So just a couple quick housekeeping items here. First of all, if you ever want to get in touch, jason at zero to travel.com is my email. If you're not signed up over at zero to travel.com, you're missing out on all the cool stuff we got going on over there. Stuff that's not on the podcast. Got some articles coming out on the Eurail Pass, round the world plane tickets. There's a whole bunch of stuff going on. The blog that you might not hear about if you're not on the email list. So get dialed in there and I'll also send you a bonus audio file of three best ways to save money for travel. So sign up over there if you haven't done so. And second housekeeping item, if you are somebody who wants to be location independent, you want to take your work with you so you can travel anywhere, see the world and earn an income while you're doing it, ideally doing something you enjoy, 
you should join us over at Location Indie. It's a community that I co-founded. I'm not sure if you've heard about it. Maybe you've heard me talk about it on the podcast before. But we're opening up next week. So I'll give you some dates at the time of this publication. It's going to be next week that the community opens, September 23rd through the 27th, 2019, locationindie.com. So you can get around other people that are doing the whole location independent thing. And you really got to surround yourself with the support for anything you want to do, travel or otherwise. So we've got a whole community for you. If you're looking to become location independent, you need some help with that. You need some support. And also, if you already are location independent, we certainly have plenty of people in the community that are running successful businesses that are looking to connect with other people that are doing that as well. So plenty of uh, opportunities to connect with people. And next year, an exciting thing happening. We're doing an adult summer camp because that's how we roll. We weren't going to do like a traditional conference, but we wanted to bring people together and do something really cool. So we're doing an adult summer camp and it's called Camp Indie. And you'll be invited to that as well. So I know I would love to meet you in person. And if you're able to come to a summer camp and hang out and do a bunch of cool activities and have fun with us next year in June 2020, June 12th to the 14th to be specific, then that's coming your way. So you'll probably hear more about that later. But just wanted to throw that out there. Now, let's talk about today's show. A lot to cover around spaces. And one of the things that I love about the author that I interviewed today and other people that I've talked to on the podcast is when people kind of create a mission around their travels, whether it's visiting every country in the world like a recent guest has, or it's trying to visit a UNESCO World Heritage Site everywhere you go, or if it's just Something simple, like every new country I go to, I have a little patch collection. They saw a patch with the country flag on it. And I was going on a little mission to find that because it's a fun little thing. And it's not a big, overwhelming mission, but it's something to do. And I, I don't travel to countries just for the patch. <laughs> that would be kind of lame. But I do love when uh, people design their travels around a particular kind of goal because it gives some structure to a trip. And it makes it kind of fun. I, I love both styles of travel. I love these sort of open-ended, spontaneous, random travel. And it's also interesting to talk to people that have done these little mini missions with their travels. And that's certainly the case for my guest today, who wanted to visit these physical spaces and how uh, these places that impacted him on an emotional level, the people that he was able to meet just through visiting these places. There's so much to this conversation and all the stuff I talked about at the top of the show. So I know you're going to dig it and we're going to get to it in just a second. But I, I first I want to talk about how spaces can really change your travel experience. And this is a really clear, simple example, but you'll get what I mean in just a moment. Uh, quickly, first, before I get into that, I want to thank Tortuga Backpacks for supporting today's show. ZeroToTravel.com slash Tortuga will take you to a page with the best backpacks out there, whether you're traveling for three weeks, three months, or three years you're going to find the pack that's right for you. You've heard me talk about them before. I'm obsessed with these backpacks and you get 10% off for being a Zero to Travel podcast listener just by entering the promo code TRAVEL when you check out just the word TRAVEL. When you check out, you're going to get 10% off any of those backpacks. This day pack that's made out of sailcloth and my Outbreaker full-size pack. So I have the Outbreaker day pack and the full-size pack. Such a deadly combination for travel. Uh, I should say lively. Deadly might scare people, but just the right amount of pockets, the right amount of amenities, I guess, that you would need within a backpack, but very minimal and easy to travel with. So check them out. 
Got the holidays coming up, so get a gift for yourself or another traveler. ZeroToTravel.com slash Tortuga. Promo code TRAVEL, just the word TRAVEL, will get you 10% off anything you order over there. Now, a quick, easy example of how spaces can impact your travel experience. If you think about the solo traveler, booking accommodations, we all generally have to stay somewhere. And even if you're not staying in a place where there's a roof over your head, I mean, I remember one time being on the Cinque Terre coast in the Italian Riviera and just meeting a bunch of people, drinking some wine, hanging out by the cliffs over the Mediterranean and just thinking, hey, why am I going to sleep in this stuffy hostel room? It's a little bit of a dumpy hostel at that time when I can just sleep right here on this trail. So I remember just laying down and basically after the party, just going to sleep outside, waking up the next day. That's that's the ultimate view right there that I had. And uh, that was a big physical space change from where I was staying at the hostel. So stuffy room versus, you know, fresh air outdoors and uh, just being in nature, definitely waking up in a different vibe, right? There's no question about it. Uh, for the solo traveler heading out there, you already know this if you've done this before. And if you haven't, you've probably heard the stories of staying in a hostel versus staying in a hotel, Two places with a bed and a roof, but two dramatically different experiences for the traveler. One gives you a much easier ability to connect and cultivate relationships in a common room in a hostel where there's a bunch of travelers sitting around talking, maybe playing cards, maybe too many on their cell phones nowadays. I don't know. But versus a business hotel, say, or a nice hotel where a lot of business travelers are going and they're kind of caught up in their own work. They're in and out. Even if there's a lot of tourists there in hotels, generally, you know, been to hotels. I mean, how many people are talking to the people in the room next door, come and knock on their door? Hey, what are you up to? What are you doing tonight? <laughs> doesn't usually happen at hotels. So we can see in these simple examples how spaces can dramatically change our travel experience, can impact our decisions, our mood, all kinds of stuff. And I was really interested in exploring this topic with Dan, my guest today, when he reached out because he wrote an incredible book uh, called Outpost. And you'll hear about it in the show, so I'm not going to spoil too much uh, for you. But he visited a bunch of unique places all over the world and talked about some of these things around physical spaces and, of course, the people he meets along the way and all the things that come with any great adventure. And one of the predominant themes, something that I don't think about too often, is how places have a story to tell. And I was reflecting on this just before recording this introduction with you and thinking about some of the places I've been. For example, the Dachau concentration camp and the heaviness in the air and the sadness and the grief and the suffering. You can feel it just walking around there. You can really feel it. And the crazy house in Dalat, Vietnam, it's this, I don't know if you've ever heard of it, you can Google it, but it's exactly what it says it is. It's a crazy house that uh, this woman had a vision for, this surreal, bizarre guest house that she then created, which is the opposite of everything else that's around that area. And this is in the central highlands of Vietnam. It's to me, telling the story of somebody who has an artistic vision and is not afraid to bring it to life. And that in itself is inspiring. Just seeing a structure like that inspires me 
to be more creative, to put myself out there. So there's these emotions, these things around these structures that can impact you in a very visceral, emotional way. And even as a physical way, you can certainly have physical reactions. I definitely had physical reactions going and visiting the concentration camp. And um, all these places that I'm talking about gave me physical as well as emotional reactions of various kinds. And it's just something I haven't thought about too much. And I was excited to engage in this conversation so we could explore it a bit. So here's my conversation with Dan. I hope you enjoy it. And on the other side, stick around because I'm going to share one of my favorite wild places on planet Earth. And give a shout out to one of you beautiful souls in the zero to travel community. Enjoy listening in on this conversation. I will see you on the other side, my friend. Today, I am thrilled to welcome Dan Richards to the show. I've been absorbed by his book, Outpost, A Journey to the Wild Ends of the Earth, which asks the question, are there still wild places out there on this crowded planet? We're about to find out, I think, in our conversation today. Dan, welcome to the Zero to Travel podcast, my friend. Hello. Thank you for having me. It's yeah, good man. to be here. Uh, it's a pleasure. I know you just got home. You were in Edinburgh, as we were talking before we started recording, uh, but you grew up in Wales. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, I was... I was born in Wales, a um, place called Swansea, which is in South Wales, okay. uh, which is a fairly sort of wild and rugged place itself. Yeah. Well, what is it like growing up in Wales? Because, I mean, certainly if somebody said to me, growing up in America, I know what the typical American suburban childhood is because I lived it, right? But I have no like cultural reference for what a typical childhood is in Wales. I have no idea. Like, what was What was life like growing up for you? Well, it was, I mean, I'm, I was born into quite an interesting family. My mum worked uh, in the NHS. So she was, um, worked at Swansea General Hospital. Um, so she was doing that when she was quite young. And my dad uh, was a teacher, but before I was born, he'd been quite a sort of, um, sort of enthusiastic climber. And he'd been on a number of expeditions um, all over the world to the high Arctic, which is where I kind of begin the book talking about that. But in terms of my childhood, I guess, so I was born in this place and then um, fairly rapidly we moved. So I was, in, I was in South Wales for a bit and then my parents moved to an island, a Greek island called Spetsis, where my dad was engaged to build a sort of working replica of Jason and the Argonauts boat, the really? Argo. Yeah, because it's that sort of crazy family. Uh, yeah, so we were there for a bit. And then uh, we moved back to the UK after uh, about six months, a year. Um, and then I grew up in Bristol. And Bristol is in the southwest of the UK. It's very near South Wales. Um, it's quite an arty place. Um, it had a big port. It was historically very involved with the slave trade and that's where a lot of the money came from uh it was one of the kind of triangle of um sort of slave ports and that's um something that's still very much talked about today and there's still a lot of kind of like conversations about that kind of history and the fact that it you know grew rich on that trade and um so the idea of 
a kind of mix of people, but also, you know, at the other end of things, the idea of reparation and everything is all going on in Bristol. So it's always been a kind of quite a place of art, a place of um, sort of learning and trade and all of that stuff. So it was a real kind of, I don't know, a very interesting place to grow up. And then just down the road where my parents live now is Bath, which you probably know from the Roman baths and uh, the fact it's quite a sort of ancient place with the Romans and uh, with the Georgian city and all of that. So it was an amazing place to grow up in a lot of ways, but it's quite a long way from being wild and rugged. So perhaps this is why I set off to kind of like fairly less, uh, I don't know, populous places when I got a bit older. Right. Well, with your dad doing all this traveling, and we can get into the sort of the genesis of the book, but was it kind of a mystery? Was that part of it too? Like he would just disappear and kind of reappear, and you knew he was on some adventures, but you didn't really know exactly as you're growing up. Because as a kid, you can't sort of conceptualize everything, right? Because you you haven't yeah. you don't have enough life experience to do it, right? Well, that's so. it. Yeah, <laughs> and and there would be these things that you know when he. When he'd been off climbing, for example, he had some brilliant climbing gear. So he'd have this, this I remember, I've got it upstairs now, um, his brilliant ice axe, which is from the days before you get these kind of like, you know, pterodactyl axes. This is a proper kind of like French ice axe, wooden handle. And we went climbing for the last book I wrote. And, you know, it's still a sturdy and very useful piece of kit. But you go out into the high mountains of the Alps in Switzerland or whatever. And he's got his he's got his kit. And people were looking at him like, you know, where did you come from? Sort of like 1975, uh, which is, you know. But, yeah, there, there was that sort of thing in the house. And as a young kid, I was always interested in the kit. The kit was always very interesting to me. And then, as I think we're going to get on to, he occasionally brought these strange artifacts back from trips like, uh, you know, polar bear pelvises and things like that. Yeah, I mean, that that's kind of where it all started for you, right? If you want to just, I mean, I've read the book, so I know, but, you know, people listening to this, you want to kind of tell them that story so they can really understand where this sort of came from for you? Okay, so just before, just before I was born, my dad came back from an expedition and he'd been up towards the North Pole a island archipelago called Svalbard. Um, I'm in some... Norway right now, by the way. So very familiar. Yeah, I live in Oslo. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so, yeah. So, you know, a sort of far-flung piece of your nation up there. And um, he had, and, and probably a lot of your listeners will know Svalbard because of Philip Pullman and his dark materials and all of this kind of thing. It was a completely unknown place to me growing up. But when he came back from this particular expedition, my dad brought a polar bear pelvis. No one's quite sure how he brought this back. Um, But it's not something you can like stick in your carry on luggage, right? Well, exactly. Yeah. (laughs) And even even in the early 80s, you know, there were customs, there were scanners and things. But anyway, he got this thing back in his kit. And I imagine that he got it back by putting it in the smelliest bag because famously when climbers wanted to, you know, smuggle anything, they would just put it in the bag with all the unwashed climbing kit and uh, anybody opening that bag would immediately close it. Whatever was in it, they'd just close it. (laughs) Right. Yeah, that makes sense. I can see that. (laughs) Yeah. So that was always in the house and it was this kind of alien artifact, but it spoke to me as a kid. 
about the wild places that my dad had visited and and to actually engage with it and look at it and pick it up and turn it over in my hands and peer into its kind of coral-like interior and really sort of, you know, take it all in, this amazing bony frame, was it was like a prism back into the past before I was born, just before I was born, when my dad was up in these frozen wastes, you know, this great white silence of the Arctic. And all through my childhood, it was just there. And I think now, writing books like I do, it's one of the things that most inspired me to do what I do. And whether I had ever thought about it until this book, I don't know, but it was definitely always there. You know, it was always in the background. It's one thing that these physical objects are sitting there when you're growing up and that doesn't necessarily always lead to, you know, people traveling the world or going on these expeditions like you have, (laughs) you know, or doing these massive projects. It seems like there is a fascination with these physical objects to the point where you're bringing the physical objects into like, you're kind of manifesting some kind of trip from that, from that physical object. I mean, certainly that's, part of the case with your book, I think, with uh, these physical structures, right? I mean, it's definitely one of the the key themes in this book. And I'm just curious, because I think sometimes the space you stay when you travel, like the space you stay in, is the experience in some ways, right? Like if you're sleeping on a train, for example, and it's nighttime and you can't see anything out the window, but it's like the sleeping on the train kind of is the travel experience, right? Yeah. (laughs) I think a lot of the book is kind of about what we're both kind of getting at is this idea of manifestation in a way. The experience becomes manifest. I mean, I was always interested in going back to see where this object, this pelvis came from, because my dad brought two things back from that trip to the Arctic. One was the, the, the pelvis itself, and one was a snapshot of him and his team um, outside this very simple shed where they'd stayed. They were on a geo- geological expe- expedition. Um, they'd stayed in this shed. The shed is perfectly ordinary, apart from the fact it's there, if you know what I mean. It's the most northerly shed on Earth, possibly, um, you know, just above 78 degrees north. And um, I wanted to know what had become of it because, you know, I we had the we had the the pelvis here but the snapshot of the shed was interesting to me and then I began to think about these kind of like far-flung jumping off points really for exploration and with the last book I did uh that was all about climbing so I'd stayed in some climbing cabins and various things and they were completely crazy to me because they were you know perched often halfway up a mountain so you'd hike or walk or both above the snow line you get above glaciers and everything, and then you would pitch up to some sort of quite rudimentary or in some cases quite she-she um, bunkhouses where there might even be a kitchen where you might even pay some money and be cooked a meal. Um, but unless you were climbing that particular mountain or took an interest in alpinism, you'd have no idea this place existed. It was literally beyond the scope of civilians, as I began to think of them. Um So I began to think, what other places are there like that on Earth? And what can sort of a visit to these places tell us about, you know, these wonderful hidden worlds, which are perhaps diminishing because, you know, the world is changing. When I tried to get back to the exact place my dad was, you know, that place cannot really be gone to these days because the glaciers around that hut, they're not there anymore. You know, the place where he found the bare um, skeleton remains 
you know, that's so changed and it's so unstable in every sense of that word. Um, so I began to think of it as a kind of almost a way of, I suppose, appraising where we are. And one of the reasons I wanted to write the book, because as you say, there's a difference between having an object from a far flung place and choosing to go and explore that far flung place. That's a kind of jump. But one of the drivers for choosing to go was the fact that I w- I'm worried about the state of the world, you know, and I want to go and see what's going on at the same time. And this is often, this is often a kind of uh, odds with that impulse to go and see, I didn't want to do any further harm. So the way that I travel for this book, I tried to leave no trace and I tried to do no harm. Uh, it wasn't always possible, but you know, for one thing I don't drive. So there was a lot of, uh, hitchhiking and, uh, with all of the hijinks that kind of involves <laughs> near death experiences that kind of involved. And, uh, yeah. So trying to get around, leave no trace and get out there and see what's going on. For the modern day traveler who has an awareness or, around these issues and sustainability and all that it's it's a bit of a moral dilemma right sure yes absolutely um i think there's you know there's a lot to be said for um what's going on now with greta you know we um and she's an absolute hero i think there's a interesting thing that kids get it in the way that adults don't there's an age and this isn't meant to be patronizing at all it's just they don't have the baggage they don't have the kind of um sense of entitlement that creeps up on people as they get older kids get it you know and they see that the world is imperiled and they want to do something fundamentally about it and they want to stop it and they want to fix it whereas the older we get the more we are hamstrung and we are in some way um i don't know essentially I think we're kind of crippled by the knowledge of what's happened before and the fact that our forebears are terrible at doing anything unless it's actually critically endangered to the point of, you know, actual death actually now. Um, So the fact that Greta's doing all this stuff and raising awareness is wonderful. And one of the things that I think everyone can do is kind of use more public transport, for example, at at a sort of basic level, use your personal vehicle less, use public transport more. Now, that's not going to work necessarily in the US where you don't really have any public transport in the middle of nowhere. I discovered, you know, if you want to get across the US on a rail line, you've got three options. Um, (laughs) And some of your biggest cities don't even have a rail link, which is crazy to me. It led to some kind of confusion and uh, time spent in major places in the US for the book, wondering how the heck I was going to get out of there, you know? But in Europe and places, there's, um, as I say, there's fly scam, which is kind of like flight shame. And I think there's a lot to be said for that. And um, I'm going down to Venice in a couple of months and I'm taking the train and I'm really looking forward to it. I think it's going to be amazing um, because I could go for far less money and do more harm and just go into a big mall that planes fly out of and land in another big mall that planes fly into and have no association where I've come from and where I'm going. I won't see the landscape change. It's essentially like a terrible, terrible, terribly disappointing version of teleportation. 
Uh, and um, I love trains for that because yeah. you're actually going somewhere to see the landscape change. You're engaged with the landscape. That's one of my big things. That was a very long answer to a short question. No, that's great. I mean, this is an important topic. And then you mentioned the, the flight shaming and the flea scum, they call it in, in Norway, which is, I think, sort of originated in Scandinavia as a trend. I'm not sure um, if anybody's going to argue it started here or there. But um, the overall point w- was that people are starting to frown upon these sort of like in Scandinavia, a popular thing to do is to fly to the South of Spain, you know, get some sun because there isn't a lot of sun here. (laughs) It's not really warm. So people fly down there and it's a very popular destination. That's just one of many, but it's starting to be really looked down upon. And it's interesting. You talk about the train journey because I mean, this ties in with your book as well. It's really, everything comes down to mindset, right? It's like, if you, if you see the train as, oh my God, it's going to take me forever to get there. I'd rather just get there quickly and see more stuff. And, and it's sort of this thing that's impeding on your travel experience. Well, then it's probably going to be a terrible <laughs> ride, right? I mean, you're choosing to kind of embrace this sort of traditional mode of traveling, if you will, by, uh, like you said, seeing the changing landscape and kind of embracing all the things that come along with that. And, that's that's like a mindset thing, right? Yeah. I think it goes back to why one travels in the first place. I think there's a very modern attitude that you travel somewhere, so the goal is the place you're going, and then you juice that, you do that, it's done, you know, you get exactly out of it what you want, no more, no less, and then you go home. And my attitude to travel is different to that. I perhaps want to go somewhere and I see then, okay, what's an interesting way I can get there? What can I see along the way? Is there any way I could stop off? And maybe there is something that I want to do or someone that I want to see at the other end. But I also am aware that, you know, plans go awry and things change and hey, I might find something interesting en route. And so I kind of factor in that actually I'm going on an adventure rather than going on some sort of very prescriptive trip as if it's all business, you know? Because some of my, uh, the best things in the book came out of meeting strangers. And I think when you're traveling, you know, in a public sphere, in a public way, and you say, you know, it's a traditional way of travel. And I think that's, you know, that's good. But I think in the old days, there was an acknowledgement you couldn't go everywhere on your horse. You couldn't walk everywhere. And so, you know, the plane has just taken over from the train as the kind of like go-to method. But I don't think it's any less sort of relevant. And now we've got trains that are so fast that they're genuinely, when you factor in all the hassle of airports, it's as quick. In fact, it's quicker to go from London to Paris, for example, by train than it is to fly. And it's quicker, I think, to get to Germany from France you know, from Paris than it is to fly. So if you just sort of like think about that, rather than having flight, for example, as the default, if you just think about it, not you, but, you know, everyone, if we just consider it, then suddenly it kind of like, and it, and it ceases to be a kind of sort of, I don't know, eccentric thought, but a kind of genuine alternative that people would, you know, consider. Uh and obviously the, the prices have got to come down and all of that. But in the next 20 years, I wouldn't be surprised with the, you know, 
cost of everything going up. If trains don't become, you know, you get a new golden age for it. I am a big fan of them, but at the same time, I think it just makes total sense. Um, and there's kind of, but the fact that there weren't that many in America led to the hitchhiking episodes, which were great for the book, because, I mean, I discovered that what's bad in life, what's terrible in life is generally very good in a book. <laughs> you know, that's that's a really good philosophy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Again, I've embraced it. It's true. <laughs> I'm trying to fight it. So when I got down to Utah, I went to see this kind of um, experimental Mars base that they had in the desert of Utah. And um, I got a got a bus from Salt Lake City down to a place called Green River. And then I realized I had another 100 kilometers or something to go. So I started to try and hitchhike. And in the book, I describe it as being like Hugh Grant stumbled onto the set of No Country for Old Men. You know. I was fundamentally out of my depth and ended up having a series of near misses of various sorts. Um, but, you know, I'm still here to tell the tale. And it was an excellent adventure. And I wouldn't necessarily recommend that. But actually, you know, getting into these strange places without a ready escape route, it really does sort of like make you feel alive. <laughs> yeah. I mean, do you feel comfortable in that situation? I mean, like more comfortable, I'd say, than the average person? Or is it just that? Is it is it kind of like you know, the thrill of that, that, that gets you excited? Or are you kind of like, oh, I'm, I'm in it here. This is not a good situation, but I got to do what I got to do to get out. I guess a bit of everything. I mean, I'm not a masochist. I don't right, okay. really want to, you know, I do want to genuinely get out of it. Yeah. But because there I'm, are those masochists out there that are like, put me in this yeah. terrible situation. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. I've never felt more alive than in the jaws of death. Um, <laughs> right. I'm not quite that bad. And I would say that what I find acceptable is not what everyone else finds acceptable. I understand that. And, you know, I go traveling with a number of friends in this book and all of them, I think, eventually sort of go, what is going on? You know, you, you had some they, good. Uh, there were some good funny parts with your buddy in Scotland there. I found that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, masochism might have come into that. You know, we took a we took a walk of over 100 miles. So I guess 120 kilometers or something across. We started in Moorland and we went through mountains and everything. And, you know, Scottish people, they love to suffer. I think that's fair to say. And, uh, you know, I just thought, let's test that out with my friend Steve. Um, and, you know, we had a lovely time and neither of us died. And I think at the end of, of the book, most of the people that I went adventuring with, we can all say no one died. And in the end, we'd probably consider it a success. And we're still talking. So that's a success in my book. Yeah. Well, when you haven't died and you're finished the trip, then then that's when you go to the pub and you can have all the laughs, right? Oh, gosh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and we discovered on that Scottish trip, we actually ran into this brilliant psychologist lady who was telling me about the three types of fun. Yes, uh, I love this. <laughs> I'm glad you brought this up. This is this is brilliant. Yeah. And I had to actually say in the book, you know, she was real. She existed. Right. Because you couldn't hope. It almost seemed too perfect for the situation and everything. Yeah. I was almost apologetic. (laughs) Uh, So she described to me the three types of fun. Type one fun is fun. That's fun that you have at the time and it feels fun. It's just, this is fun, you know? That's like I'm going to Disney World. I'm riding this roller coaster. It's fun. That's right. <laughs> I'm going to Disney World and someone else is paying, you know, that yeah. kind of 
fun. Um, <laughs> you can't type, not have fun with type one fun, right? No, it's a, type yeah. one fun is Impossible. just straight fun. Right. Um, type two fun is something that wasn't fun at the time, but is fun in retrospect. And I think that's that's a, a lot, lot of travel. A lot of travel. Yeah. <laughs> You know, it's later when you go to the pub and then you can sort of pick it over or you're showing your pictures to your family and friends. It's type two fun. You know, it might have been hot and uncomfortable and kind of unfortunate at the time. But in retrospect, it's gold. Yeah. Some type, parts of travel, I should say. Yeah. But yeah. yeah. <laughs> type three fun. Here we go. It wasn't fun at the time. <laughs> it isn't fun for you now. <laughs> But other people seem to find it quite funny. Right, that's the kicker. <laughs> yeah. So it's almost fun that's offset. Fun that only exists outside yourself. It's third-person fun, it should be called. And, uh, yeah, so that was quite interesting to, to behold. I think a lot of people have type 2 fun when they're traveling. I tend to have type I, – I think I have all of the fun. I have types 1, 2, and 3. Um, there is quite a lot of type – three fun in this book yeah. uh, well you, like you said i mean type three fun if it's bad in life it's good for the book so yeah you yeah know. you get to write it down and you know hopefully the reader gets to laugh because they've got a little bit of distance from it you know yeah, yeah. well this is what i love about these characters you meet like this psychiatrist or or whatever it's it's like sometimes these random people will just drop this crazy nugget of wisdom <laughs> that kind of blows yeah. you away that's right in the middle of wherever on earth yeah. you know and it's just like wow that's just just so memorable you know yeah <laughs> it's, like, this key's i mean uh, at the beginning of the talk you asked why i travel and i think all of this is about connection i'm really interested in meeting people um you know when my dad went traveling when he did his climbing um he often climbed in the footsteps of his great aunt and uncle, and they were pioneering mountaineers. Um, and I discovered when I wrote my own book about them, because they were amazing people. This is the book before Outpost. Uh, it's called Climbing Days. They were the most amazing people. And my dad went to, you know, all over the UK and Europe, climbing in their footsteps when they were still alive. And he never told them that he had done all this because he was worried at some level that, you know, they wouldn't care or, you know, it wouldn't mean anything to them. And he was worried about a lack of, in some ways, emotional response because he himself was, you know, um, I guess socially a little awkward or socially worried, you know, and these were great people in the family. And he was worried about making a fool of himself, perhaps. And I only discovered that while writing the book. You know, my dad and I went and we climbed a mountain called the Dent Blanche in Switzerland and we got benighted on the side, which is a beautiful word and a horrible reality where basically you stop because there's a snowstorm or you've run out of energy and you just sit down. And so we waited a night out on the side of this mountain in Switzerland called the Dent Blanche. We had a beautiful, fairly, uh, you know, frigid view of the Matterhorn opposite for about eight, nine, ten hours. And during that night, he told me this story, which he hadn't really told anyone about how he'd been climbing and then not told these people who he held as such heroes. And that changed the way that I thought about the family and it changed the way I thought about climbing and it changed the way I thought about connection. And that book really became then the story not only of these relatives of mine, but also about my dad and also about 
the way people talk to each other or don't and the lengths we will go to to make a connection, whether or not other people know it. And I think everything that I write is about connection. This book, in a way, is about reconnecting with that polar bear pelvis and the wonder I felt as a child or visiting places that have always fascinated me. So I go to a lighthouse in the North Atlantic Sea because lighthouses were always these incredibly powerful and exciting uh, you know, structures for me growing up as a kid. And I go to Jack Kerouac's file lookout in Desolation Peak in Washington State in the North Cascades. Because growing up, I loved Kerouac's writing and, you know, I loved his adventures. And here was somewhere that meant a lot to him and he wrote about many times. And, you know, so there's a bit of a laundry list, a bit of a bucket list about the book. From my point of view, I wanted lots of different outposts that in many ways embodied the idea both of kind of wilderness, but also connection. They all were important to different groups of people at different times. Obviously, a lighthouse is very important to any sailors on the sea. And, you know, a particular shrine in Japan is very important if you, you know, are a follower of the Shinto religion and you know it's been there a thousand years. And Kerouac, you know, had this real experience, this real kind of, you know, his stint as a fire lookout was a really important time in his life. And so to go around and kind of unpack all these things, that became the kind of, I guess, the sort of center of the book, this idea of the connection. You know, the wilderness and the connection, as you mentioned, outposts and connection, this is like a yin-yang type of situation, right? And you have a quote in the book. It's funny because you kind of have a take on Kerouac and some of, the, some of his writing as it related to Desolation Peak and you know, the supposed peace and serenity he found that uh, <laughs> he was never really able to capture in his life. But one of the quotes you said, uh, you said, quote, uh, Kerouac is like constantly oscillating between a desire for companionship and an equal and opposite need for solitude. I'm wondering if that resonates with you as an individual. Yes, hugely. Um, I mean, it's very much the the sort of, I mean, it's the human condition, I think, in a lot of ways. People need their space. At the same time, they they want this connection. But also, from my personal point of view, as being a writer, um, you can't write in company, really. You know, and I'm sure a lot of your listeners, you know, you yourself, a lot of what we do when we have to be clear and get our thoughts down on paper or just, you know, understand what we mean, what we think, you need time and you need personal space to do that. But, you know, I'm, I know I'm not great on my own. You know, I get sort of fairly sort of miserable if I'm on my own for a concerted period of time. I don't have this kind of like Zen um, ability to sort of make my own entertainment all of the time. I can do that quite a lot, but I'm less good at it than I would wish. But I think the fact I know that is because I've spent time, you know, on my own and it's not always gone well. But in <laughs> retrospect, I love it. But at the time, it can be a bit of a kind of... It's type two know. fun. <laughs> it's yeah, type two fun. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> no, I, I, I'm slightly envious of, uh, you know, one of the places you go in is in Iceland where you really get out, out into the wilderness and 
you know, you go to a place like that and you see, say, somebody like running a farm or a homestead out there in the middle of nowhere. And I'm slightly envious of those people. Like if they're truly out there and at peace, I'm like, you are a Zen master because I would be going a bit crazy, I think, after a period of time. Sure. I was actually I was I was on Radio 4, the BBC, uh, a couple of months ago with the most amazing lady, an Icelandic shepherdess who runs the most I mean, a big, big farm with lots and lots of sheep on it on her own. And she was called Heida. And um, one of the most, you know, she was a brilliant lady and very charismatic, but she didn't say a lot. You know, she was very considered. And I think that's one of the great things about um, Icelandic people where they, they weigh their words and they're very lyrical and they manage to say a lot with a very few words. Whereas I, you know, I feel, I feel myself flailing about all the time, you know, but they seem very considered and very settled and very happy in their landscape, this amazing changeable landscape. And they have this very ancient connection with their nature, you know, because I suppose if you're on an Island and you are sat on top of a lot of volcanoes, um, and at the same time you're sat on this great sort of Atlantic Ridge. So the whole place is moving and it's changeable. They have the most brilliant um, sort of wry, humorous relationship with their world. And that was wonderful to witness and be a part of. As a writer and a person, as I'm talking to you right now, you have a, a really innate ability to, to sort of how you just described Icelandic people and coming to that conclusion. Like, how do you as a traveler, as a writer, as a, a creative person, how do you go on, on a trip like this, say we'll take the, ice, the trip to Iceland as an example, and figure out how to sort of be in the moment, but then take this meta view and, and try to understand what it means and, and make these observations and kind of come to these conclusions. How does that process work for you? I think it goes back to the idea of traveling on one's own and not being being prepared but not being too prepared when you're a stranger and sort of you turn up in people's lives and you're enthusiastic which I try to be and you try and engage with them in a sincere way people often they will tell you things because they can tell that you're genuinely interested um you know and you're asking questions and you're inquisitive and you don't necessarily have an agenda and that's the case when I go traveling a lot, I'm there to learn. I'm not going in with a fixed set of quite dogmatic um, opinions, which I want confirmed. Um, in the case of kind of, of Iceland, I pitched up and asked some guys who I knew were involved with these sail house buildings, which I was interested in, these very old um some of them as old as the Norse kind of, um, you know, centuries, millennia old bunk houses. Um, and I, I said, can I help you refurbish these? Can I help you rebuild them? So I go and I offer kind of, you know, my myself, my work, um, you know, the ability to help out. You kind of pitch up and you pitch in and you are genuinely interested and you talk to people. I think so much travel, going back to what we were talking about before, people go and they want to see things and juice a place and they don't actually engage 
with the community there, the people who live there. They don't ask questions. They're just kind of like a fleetingly, you know, there and gone. You know, they're tourists. And I try and avoid being a tourist. I try and actually engage. And when people often have a sort of strange stranger in their midst, often, you know, it might, I'm very lucky people talk to me. Some people become quite, um, I don't know, um, confessional because they know that they're talking to me. I don't live there. Um, they could talk to me. I mean, who cares? They're talking to me. You know, I'm, I'm not, it's not, it doesn't matter. I'm just a stranger. I think when you're a stranger, people open up a bit. People are perhaps, you know, trusting. That might not be the word, but certainly they are. It flows both ways, that kind of inquisitive curiosity, that that enthusiasm. And sometimes when you go and you ask people about their world, they themselves see it with fresh eyes. They begin to see it in a new light and they begin to get enthusiastic about this place that perhaps they grew up in. And then my job as a writer, I think, is to communicate that onto the page, is to be a conduit for all of me going out and me talking, I, when I write, want to get myself out of the way and give you, the reader, an insight into what this world is. And so whilst my travels, obviously, you know, we're all there, we're all, you know, experiences seeing the world, you know, through ourselves. But when I write, I try and get myself out of the way so I can give a kind of um, sort of insight into what I found and how it was and who they were and how their voices were and what they thought and the colors and all the sensory stuff. Cause I don't think you want me wanging on about what I thought before I went and how that was correct. What could be more boring than that? I want to kind of put myself in discomfort and I want to kind of meet people unexpectedly and have adventures and perhaps it'd be a bit harem scarum and then communicate that to you and you have fun with that uh, do you ever and get it, self-conscious during that process like oh this i'm, I'm not describing this right this isn't right uh, uh, no this this conclusion is wrong or this is not how these people were i'm not getting it right i'm not nailing it is that uh, ever a struggle for you often i'll try and stay in touch with them and often i'll run it past them and say is this what i mean is this what you mean um, I'm lucky that I'm still in touch with a lot of people from the Outpost book. I'm still in touch with the Icelandic guys, Stefan and Atli and the dog Heckler. I'm still in touch with them. I'm still in touch with Jim, the fire lookout who's currently at Desolation Peak. Um, all of these people, because I think often also, rather than a fleeting thing, because if you're a tourist, it's fundamentally a fleeting thing. You go, you see, you leave, you know? Um, if you actually engage, you go, you engage, you remain in touch. I think that's the difference between traveling for me and tourism. You actually, you know, leave something of yourself behind in a good way. And as much as you've made an impression and you stay in touch, um, and you know, if you do that well, and if you do that sincerely, often people say, come back, you know? Whereas if you're a tourist, they don't have the opportunity to say, come back. They say, you know, enjoy the next place you're going. You know, they say, you know, well, good luck wherever it is you're off to. But if you maintain right. a stay for a little bit of time, you can, you know, actually develop relationships, this connection again. Yeah, I mean, that assumption from the locals perspective is easy to make if the person they're engaging with has the attitude of, I'm a traveler, I'm just passing through. You know, well, all yeah. right, well, this person's just passing through. That's 
that's what it is, you know, and it's just kind of uh, accepted. So certainly taking that different approach that you're talking about, I mean, you can see how it just naturally leads to deeper connections in a different yeah. way. Because um, my book as well, I mean, I've kind of described it like a travel log, just me, but the book is full of voices. And something I'm always keen to do is put as many voices in my book in my books as possible, you know, these different viewpoints. And some of the voices in my book are from literature. So Jack Kerouac's in here a lot. And um, there's a bit of Dennis Johnson, who I adore, a brilliant American writer. And Philip Larkin. There was a poem of Philip Larkin's that really was a real touchstone throughout this book. And it's a poem called Home is So Sad. And there were lines from that uh, which go... It stays as it was left, formed to the comfort of the last to go, as if to win them back. And that really spoke to me because when I'd been to the climbing huts or the bothies of Scotland or the sail house of Iceland, you walk into somewhere which is a station along the way and has been for a long time. And you find these traces of absent people and it, you feel the connection in that way. You feel the absence. When I eventually got up to Svalbard, I went to a place called Pyramiden, which is this frozen, almost mummified coal mining place, um, you know, um, above Longyearbyen, the capital, where you have to either get a boat or you have to take dogs or snowmobile to get there. And it's frozen in time. And this was once home to hundreds of coal miners and their families, you know. And now it's the, you know, it's home to reindeer and polar bear and snow foxes and the occasional tourist. But because of the climate, it's not going anywhere. You know, it's not rusting, really. It's not rotting. It will just remain there until probably snow build up, caves in a few roofs. But it will take hundreds of years to properly de deteriorate, like somewhere at lower um, latitudes would. And so it stays as it was left. This kind of investigation of traces of, of people, this investigation of literature, this investigation of voice. I'm really trying to put everything in there, these connections, because I just think it makes the most amazing mix and through that big mixture of stuff, hopefully the reader gets this kind of almost polyphonic view, this polyphonic sense of places maybe they'll never go, but places that might really fire their imagination and make them think about the world in a different way. And you can see how some of these themes interconnect in your work, and you're kind of alluding to the energy of spaces, which it sounds to me like you do believe there's an energy to these spaces. I think something I really believe in is that spaces and architecture and landscape, they bear witness. You can walk into certain places, certain landscapes, and you get a sense of, I don't know energy is the right word, but a sense of time, you know, and certainly some places are very freighted. They're very heavy with things that have happened, you know? You can, you can go into certain rooms and get certain feelings about them. And I think as human beings, there's something incredibly haunting and attractive about, for example, a ruin. There's something very um, interesting to us about an abandoned space. And I think that's through us. And so I'm interested in that. I'm interested in this story of, you know, 
because we're all aware, I think, we can all picture Scott's hut in Antarctica. You know, Captain Scott went out there, was going to the South Pole, and he has this hut, and he's going with all of these men to try and race Amundsen to the pole. But they're all gone. You know, even the ones who made it home, they're all gone now, but the hut remains. The hut is the witness. And that's so powerful as that idea of witness and that idea of reliquy in a way. I think that's a powerful thing. They still have Shackleton's boat where he mounted that amazing rearguard action to save his men on the transpolar expedition, you know, and he sailed this open boat to South Georgia. And you have these exhibit is the wrong word. You have these artifacts these living artifacts that are so full of story in the same way that I found that polar bear pelvis, he said, professionally pulling it back to his book, that polar bear <laughs> pelvis that was so full of story for me growing up. You know, you have these things. And I think those are the, um, you know, the jumping off points. They're the prisms through which we can tell really interesting story about man's connection to wild place. I remember the first time I saw Contiki here in Oslo. Uh, and the museum, and I mean, you're right, seeing that boat, it was an experience that I really can't describe. It was like an internal experience and a feeling that if I was the writer, half the writer that you were, I maybe would be able to describe it. But <laughs> I think it's about personality, though, isn't it? You really feel that you're meeting something or someone that's lived. Yeah. In a way, you know? It has a story. And, yeah. um, you know, that was another interesting chapter in the book when you went to, yeah, Shed Boat Shed was the the sculpture, yeah. which is, was kind of, well, you can explain what it was. Okay, so I went to Copenhagen to talk to an artist called Simon Starling, and he won the Turner Prize um, back in the 90s for this amazing uh, installation, really. But it, um, installation doesn't quite have the word. It's a kind of a kinetic work because... He was cycling along a towpath beside um, the Rhine, I think in Switzerland, near Basel, and he found this amazing shed. And the shed was by the side of the river, and it had an oar kind of on the front of it, and it was a boat shed. And he was looking at this, and um, he suddenly had the idea that this shed was full of possibility in a way that I think a lot of buildings are full of possibility. They seem quite characterful. They seem like they are invitations to adventure and so what he did he rebuilt the shed as a vitling which is a kind of um traditional boat a kind of punt that they have in that part of the world and he rebuilt the shed as this boat and then he put all of the shed that was not rebuilt as the boat the leftover bits in it and on a series of trips he carted sailed punted everything down to a gallery in basel and then once everything was there, he rebuilt the boat as the original shed, exactly. And if you know where to look, you can see some scars. But essentially, that shed remained as ever as it was, but it had been on an adventure. Yeah, it's I just the story that. behind it. It now has a story. It's so childlike. And at the same time, it's so relatable. Right. And when it won the Turner Prize... The art critics were quite snooty about it and saying, well, you won't get anything out of this exhibit unless you know the history of kind of, you know, postmodern sculpture or something, which was utter rubbish because all the public really, you know, engaged with it and loved it because it was full of story and they found it relatable. 
Um, and so I went to Copenhagen to talk to him and we were talking about his other work. Another piece that he did was take water from the Dead Sea, which is rich in metals, take the metals out of the water from the sea by electrolysis, get enough metal from the sea to build a boat. He built a kayak from the metal in the water and then sailed across the sea, paddled across the sea in that boat. It's alchemy. It's magic. It's something from nothing. And this is why I'm so drawn to that type of art, because I think it's wonderfully childlike. Um, and it's, it's really a sort of a way of suspending belief in that way. I think travel does that. It takes it, which comes back to this, belief that I have that you should go out to discover new things rather than going out to check off things that you know you want to see to, with a kind of confirmation bias where I'm going to, you know, tick off this kind of like, you know, list of stuff that, you know, is kind of what everyone does. You know, people come and they see Bath where I am at the moment, where my parents live. And what do they do? They come and see the Roman baths. Maybe they go to the Jane Austen Museum and in the same weekend, they will probably do Stonehenge. They will do London. Um, you know, maybe they'll do Cardiff, which is the capital of Wales, and then they'll probably go and do Edinburgh. But they've seen nothing of the UK. They've just, um, you know, got this strange list of what everyone does and it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy that this is what everyone does right, this but is it's the loop <laughs> yeah exactly i mean you could take simon's work as an example i mean just the fact that he had this awareness to do this and to actually not just have the idea and then kind of pass through but to actually do it i mean i think that's what's the most inspiring part for me to, to have a big idea and then to execute it yeah. Um, on that level, uh, just just because you know, just because oh, that's going to be a magical, cool thing to do, or I'm just I'm just fascinated by this idea and I'm going to do it. And you know, he he didn't know he was going to win this prize and you know have these accolades and everything. It, it it sounded like to me it was just something within him that spoke to him in some way. I just I find that inspiring. Art for art's sake, and I think that's a good enough. I'm I'm a big believer in art for art's sake and I'm a big believer in kind of education for education's sake you know people shouldn't be reading books because they think they're good for them they should be kind of like reading everything because they're interested in that way you know people shouldn't to bring it on to what we're talking about I don't think people should be traveling in order to tick things off people should travel for the joy of travel and the possibility of unexpected things happening to them. I think a lot of people are afraid of the unexpected, but actually it's the unexpected that gives us a kind of like better understanding of the world we live in. If you only talk to people you know, you'll miss out on communicating and, you know, connecting with a lot of interesting people. And I think people are risk averse in that way. And they're quite conservative perhaps about what they do. They stick to their kind of like the thing they've always done. And perhaps I am an extreme example of this, but I am fascinated with things I don't know. I'm fascinated with putting myself in a slightly sort of um, uncomfortable position um, in as much as I want to sort of engage with things beyond my scope of knowledge. And I think that's such a healthy good thing to do you know to take risks in that way to engage from a point of 
happy, you know, quite affable ignorance. I don't want to know things I already know. <laughs> I mean, is that a lot of the motivation for a book like this? When you come up with this framework and you say, okay, well, maybe it's also a pretty good excuse to travel to some cool places too, right? <laughs> yeah. But once, I mean, in the book, one thing did lead to the other, you know? Right. I mean, I, and I was open to that. And I was, I was wondering about that. Did you pre-select all these or did you kind of? No, not really. I think what happened? Well, I went, I knew I wanted to go to Iceland because I'd heard about the sale house and I knew that the probably the shape of the book was going to be that the pelvis was the jumping off point and the hut in Svalbard. So I knew I wanted to try and get back to Svalbard and I suspected that Svalbard would be the end of the book, you know? So there would be this arc that would be the discovery and thinking about this artifact and then going back to see where it came from. And in the middle, I knew that I didn't want to go, I didn't want to repeat myself. So each of these places that I visited had to be, had to embody in a way, uh, a different facet of the idea of outpost, of the idea of perhaps solitude or wilderness or adventure. And, um, so I didn't want a book with, you know, it's called outpost, but it's only, uh, you know, it's only bothies and lighthouses because that wasn't going to really cut it. I wanted different kind of stuff. And then as you go along, you meet people who suggest things and I'm really keen to be open to kind of like accident and luck in that uh, way. Yeah, I was going to ask you about serendipity. Yeah. A lot of that. Is it I'm something that, uh, you're a believer in it? Yeah. Because it comes from engagement with people. Right. It comes from people saying, have you thought? Or I tell you what I have always wanted to do, but I've never done. And again, people open up. You tell them you're writing this crazy book and they go, oh, I know a guy who, or my mum told me a story when I was little, or have you read the book by so-and-so, which features X, Y, and Z? And then suddenly you're off on a genuinely exciting thing because of people... You know, and there's nothing more lovely than people giving you genuine um, kind of hot tips that they like, you know. And if you're lucky, they'll say, I know someone you could stay with or I know someone who knows about this. And then that's a real adventure when you're kind of putting yourself um, in the hands of sort of enthusiastic other people who want to help. Because so much of traveling is self-generating and so much of it, you have to be enthusiastic and take yourself. And when I do this kind of book, I never find myself, apart from occasionally hitchhiking ill-advisedly in Utah, I never find myself really worried because it's amazing when you get out into the world how kind people are and how enthusiastic they are and how keen they are to tell you about their own enthusiasms because people are enthusiastic and good generally i think yeah i think it's the best way to not only tackle a project like this which you know i mean i would hesitate to use the word tackle actually because i think when you bring together like the recipe of serendipity and intuition knowing kind of what interests you and curiosity and just following that yeah. Um, on any trip, on any adventure, with any project, I feel like that's that's the mix, right? That's the thing that keeps things exciting, keeps things fresh. I mean, you just following your curiosity, it's fun. Like you could take a look at a project like this book and be like, 
I mean, you can see this is very overwhelming. You have to travel to all these places. You have to do all this writing and do all this stuff. But when you're doing it in this way, I mean, is it almost organic? I guess yes, would be the word. Absolutely is. And it and I'm happily childlike and naive when I'm doing it. And I'm reminded when um, David Attenborough, he went to the White House, he met Obama. And I think Obama asked him, when, when did you first, you know, when did you first um, develop your love of the natural world, you know? And I think David Attenborough's answer is, well, when did you lose yours? You know, because we all have that to go back to Greta and everything. We all have this childlike curiosity and excitement about the world and, you know, belief in the essential goodness of human beings and things like that. I think that gets knocked out of us a bit. And I'm very keen to kind of like go out and rediscover that in a way, you know, the wonder of things. Because whilst the book may be a little bit about how the world is changing and not always for the good, it's also about the wonder of the kindness of strangers and the wonder of the natural world, the wonder of um, sort of like seeking, you know, the, you know, going out into the unknown. And yeah, there's quite a lot of type two fun when you're doing it and you've been walking for, you know, you've had to walk 30 miles in a day and you're absolutely knackered. But then, you know, often it's that closeness to things. It's that engagement with, with nature and with people and with time and with, you know, the elements and weather and all these things that we kind of shield ourselves from, perhaps in our day to day lives, that I think opens us up and gets us thinking about engagement and about community and about, you know, well, the world around us in a way that otherwise we don't because we're busy or we're grown ups or it's in some way. Yeah, or the thinking about it is fueled from the 24 seven media cycle, which is you know, one of the things that's beating everybody down. <laughs> yeah, exhausting. Essentially, same story, uh, the media, and I would say at the moment, it's the people in charge are not, don't really know what they're doing and are not making it better. No. So, you know, it's up to us to engage and try and see what's going on in the world and make some sense out of it and take responsibility and do no harm because there's a lot of harm going on. Well, I mean, time and again, when I have these conversations, inevitably somebody says, you know, there are good people out in the world. <laughs> the world is mostly full of good people. I guess it's just sort of that theme is repetitive. So it's, it's just nice to hear again and again. And I think on people that listen to this podcast probably feel the same way because what we hear too often is, all the terrible things going on. It's not to say that we should turn a blind eye or not be aware of things, but it's it's just a barrage, you know. Sure, but I don't think I don't think that it's a you know a waste of time, for example, to be to be kind. And I think when you go out into the world and you're kind and you're generous and you engage and you listen, these things are kind of in short supply, and everybody needs to do their bit on that front, you know. And when you go traveling, there's a need to be respectful. There's a need to leave no trace. There's a need to kind of, you know, um, take a kind of positive view of everything. Because, I mean, there's a lot of kind of self-serving negativity going on. There's an awful lot of cynicism in the world. And I think you need to be the sort of traveler that you would like to meet coming back the other way, if that makes sense. Yeah. How long did this project take? 
all the traveling and the writing and everything. A couple of years, I guess. But I was thinking about it for a couple before that. Okay. I tend to do books, um, write books fairly quickly. This was probably written in a year, but the traveling took two and a bit. And I take a lot of notes as I go. And I, you know, I'm old school. I use pens and pencils in books. And I take pictures <laughs> and I take recordings. <laughs> yeah, they, I got see? my pen and pencil, right? Actually, just my Excellent. pen. But yeah. yeah, I think the analog world yes. has a lot going for it. The analog world is uh, a nice place to be. I've had, I've had a, a sick fantasy or maybe not so sick fantasy of just throwing my smartphone into the fjord. But uh, I keep finding that I need it for things. <laughs> it hasn't, ha- hasn't happened yet. Uh, I mean, another benefit of having a big project like this is... When you're traveling, like you said before, I mean, you're getting in touch with people on the ground. People are saying, oh, you're doing this thing. That's cool. You should go here. You should talk to this person. Having some kind of mission or some kind of overall um, project going on while you're seeing the world, um, I have found can be really extremely helpful in opening up doors and conversations that might not have happened. And it sounds like, I mean, that was your experience as well. Yeah, yeah, really, really is the case. And also, I think, you know, talking to people from outside your country, outside your culture, uh, that's massively reassuring in a way. Um, I love that. I think travel is really good for your mental health, you know, to get out of your little bubble where we all live, you know, your town, you know, your nation and go and have a look at the world Um, and actually recognize your place in the world and all of that stuff and the interrelatedness of everything all of these connections a lot of which are quite analog you know one of the reasons i think i stay in touch with so many people is i write them letters you know of course we all write emails and you know send texts and things like that but who doesn't love to get a letter dan you know well exactly it's the best yeah, right. exactly. Yeah, of course. <laughs> Don't worry, I'll send you a letter. I see what it is. <laughs> no, I wasn't hinting at that. I just recently read an article about Instagram geotagging ruining pristine spots. What do you think of all that? Um, yeah, I think I think that it's one thing to actually geotag it yourself. It's quite another when sort of like, you know, technology does it for you. I think it's quite terrifying that no one could be anywhere without someone knowing where they are. And I tend to sort of turn my phone off when I go traveling and just use it as a camera and a watch because I'm too disorganized to have a watch. I would lose that. And I don't really want a bulky camera. So I just take my phone and I use it as those two and I'm happily off grid. I think there's a kind of paranoia that comes in that's equal, uh, sort of, you know, it's twofold. One's a paranoia that you're constantly being sort of in some way um, monitored. And the other is the paranoia that if you turn the thing off, this phone that we've all come to rely upon, you know, you're causing panic to these, to other people that because people need to know where you are. Oh, right, right. You know? How am I going to get in touch with you? Well, exactly. Which is often very <laughs> you're lovely. Not. Hey, you're not. You know, <laughs> yeah, exactly. What if I need you? And I think there's a power and it's kind of, you know, if you're going away for a week and you say, well, I'm just not going to be in touch. You can't reach me. That's quite freeing in a lot of ways. I mean, obviously, if you're going mountaineering up something fairly deadly, then, you know, it's probably quite sensible to take a phone that works. But um, 
at the same time, if you're just going off into a wild place, why would you want to take, you know, this bleepy box that's kind of just going to make, you know, life more difficult and create more problems than it solves? It's kind of amazing how quickly it went from sort of being this, I don't know, I mean, I'm, I'm older, I guess, so people that are younger that listening to this are like, this is just the way it's always been. You know, it being sort of impolite and being discreet with talking on your phone and, you know, not not making it a thing in the, in the early cell phone days to just being completely acceptable to being on them all the time. I don't know. It's I mean, amazing I, how fast that happened. I'm, I'm absolutely boggled that there's any coverage in these places anyway. I love the fact that when I went into the middle of Utah and the middle of the Cascade Mountains in Washington State and the middle of Iceland, there was no coverage. It was not a problem. It was delightful. It took the, you know, the whole decision making out of my hands. I was like, well, there is no coverage. Great. But then, weirdly, you know, you'd be in the middle of nowhere. You'd be several miles, you know, several hours from the nearest, you know, town, and suddenly, you'd be like, there's one bar of reception on my. How the hell is this happening? So it gets you. It gets you. But I do think the phones have, with the endorphin rush of getting a like and getting a text and getting a, you know, whatever, it's fundamentally rewired our brains now where we kind of like don't realize how addicted we are. And travel, another you know benefit of travel is it can be a way of going nicely cold turkey on all of this stuff. And just kind of like existing without it. And I think that's another good thing for the old mental health thing to just be on your own and have a nice bit of silence because silence is one of the most endangered things on earth. I think there's so much noise. There's so much chatter. Well, yeah, you could take a place like Desolation Peak. I mean, with the outpost, this is sort of forcing you to get off the grid, like you said, and kind of leave the technology behind and giving you the space to, to be silent and to think, I suppose. I mean, and I imagine, uh, at least it seems from the book and also you being an author, that some of the, the writing sheds, some of the f- famous writing sheds or crave spaces that uh, some authors have used, like I think you referenced Roald Dahl. hope I'm pronouncing Yeah, Roald Dahl. And uh, Dylan Thomas. Yeah, Dylan know. Thomas. Virginia Woolf had one. I mean, I think... My theory about this, the fact that many artists and craftsmen and writers and musicians, they have these bolt holes that they go and they work in. You've imported a bit of kind of Spartan space and quiet and simplicity into your working life. Because, you know, even at the time when Virginia Woolf was writing or Dylan Thomas was writing, you know, they may not have had the Internet or they may not even have phones, but they certainly had kids and they had partners, and they had, you know, distraction. So one of my favorite quotes about writing is that in order to write clearly, you have to think clearly. Otherwise, you know, it's pretty much impossible. And I think this idea of a clearinghouse for the for the mind and there's sort of um, a bit of, you know, yeah, clarity, silence, all of these things that we perhaps – you know, take for granted. But then if you think about the last time you experienced real silence or you were not bothered, you know, you were not disturbed by other people, you know, it would be a matter of at most hours. It wouldn't have been days, would it? It wouldn't have been a week. But that used to be our life as as human beings. Very recently, that used to be the situation. And now we are hardwired to look at our phone, I think, what is it, every two minutes sometimes? 
You know, that's the way the brain has gone. And you begin to panic at the thought, not you, but, you know, people begin to panic at the thought of turning the thing off. And that, to me, is a bit dark. And we can do without that. I mean, I'm aware of it and I still have a problem with it sometimes and I'm and I have the same philosophy you know and I, I, I know it's bad and sometimes you get caught in these bad habit loops where yeah. you might be on it and it's just a it's a terrible feeling and I, I think, think there's a difference between choosing to engage and something having rewired your brain so right. you engage subconsciously doing yeah, it yeah. all the it's time it's a bad choice in that way and I yeah. should say obviously uh, that listening to a podcast is a good thing to do in that particular situation because you can turn you know, it onto airplane mode and still listen to a podcast. So I think podcasts are possibly the way forward for all of this. Yeah. Choosing- yeah. <laughs> One yeah. for the podcasters. Absolutely. Um, just a couple more things. I know I'm kind of gone over our time, but um, I have a lot of questions and I like having these conversations and I'm enjoying this. So I hope that's okay. Creativity for you in a space meet we talked about the writing sheds. Do you find certain spaces to be a source of some particular type of creativity that you can harness or, uh, and maybe you have this own space for yourself in your own life, or it's just certain types of spaces. You mentioned these outposts. Was there a theme running through how you felt at the various outposts you visit? I'm just curious to be your thoughts around this. Well, from my writing point of view, I kind of have a couple of rooms where I tend to write, um, and they just have a sort of like nice, quiet atmosphere where I can concentrate. At the same time, I know that really, and I really feel that as a writer, I should be able to write anywhere in a way. Obviously, it's difficult to write, uh, you know, in a busy place where a lot, a lot of stuff is happening. But actually, I find I can write quite well on trains to go back to trains. You know, you have a, a scenes moving past the window it's relatively quiet you're going somewhere that's quite comforting to me and i can get a lot of writing and reading and various things done on trains uh not on planes weirdly there's a different atmosphere on a plane it's a bit more hectic and a bit less nice to me uh but yeah so a couple of rooms one in edinburgh uh one in bath at my parents house um and i teach in bristol and between uh, students coming to see me, I find that the um, my office there is quite conducive, conducive to getting stuff done. What do you teach? Um, I teach a creative nonfiction um, course, where which is really just an excuse for me to teach the books that I like, and uh, you know, give people extracts from things that I like, and say, look at the writing here. Let's do well, more of this. What are some of those? I'd love to hear them. Oh, okay. Um, well, let's have a think. I mean, books that are touchstones for me that I return to, and some of them are in, in the Outpost book, um, anything by Dennis Johnson. Um, is that Train Dreams? Is that cause it's one you reference? Yeah, because yeah, yeah. I, I, as soon as you mentioned that, I, I downloaded the sample on my Kindle so I wouldn't forget it. Yeah, he's ace. I mean, he recently, he died a couple of years ago. He, the last book by him is a collection of short stories called The Largess of a Sea Maiden, which I think is just an excellent title. Um, but he's my go-to guy. Um, Maggie Nelson as well. Um, Jan Morris is a wonderful travel writer. Horatio Clare. Um, let's think. And uh, Lavinia Greenlaw is a wonderful poet. She has done a book about William Morris's writings and diaries when he visited iceland 
Um, and actually, in the back of the Outpost book, there's quite an extensive bibliography of all my reading because I read all the time. Because I think to to write well, you must read a lot, and reading is really this kind of mulch or the compost from which one's own writing grows. And if you don't nourish yourself with reading, you find yourself basically, basically, I think, repeating and 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 just you know becoming quite two dimensional. And I want to be surprising in not only the places I go, but the way that I write about them. You know, I want it to be poetic or I want it to be, um, I don't know, to jar or jolt or move or, you know, surprise the reader. Because mission, mission accomplished, in my opinion. Oh, great. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a wonderful read. I'm just, we should just mention it again. The book is called Outpost, A Journey to the Wild Ends of the earth and uh, definitely recommend it. I wanted to ask you since you teach writing and you're a fabulous writer and you're a published author, what is the advice that you give to people that want to get published or they want to have a career as writers or maybe even just creators? Um, you need to finish it. Whatever you are doing, you need to finish it. I think a lot of people start things and then they kind of put it to one side. Uh, the battle is to kind of keep going and finish whatever you're working on. Get it to a point where you can show people and it has a shape and it has a personality. There's no point thinking about getting an agent or thinking about getting a publisher or anything like that unless you have something to say and it's in a form where it can speak to people. It can be read or it can be seen or it can be appreciated. Um, and the big battle, the kind of battle of all art, I think, is the little voice telling you not to bother or telling you that it isn't any good or telling you that it isn't going anywhere or telling you that you're wasting your time. You need to get whatever it is you're working on to a point where it is formed and is, you know, a whole story or it's a whole, you know, chapter or whatever it is. Um, and that is the big battle, I think. And just having the kind of energy and confidence to just see it through, you know? Yeah, that's great advice. And the you mentioned the, the little voice. Have, I don't know if you've ever read The War of Art by Stephen Pressfield. Yeah. That would yeah. be a book to, uh, to help with that if you're listening to this and you're like, that's me. Well, that, guess what? That's all of us, first of all. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. And but, also, just, just if, you're, if, you're, if you want to write read and don't just read the sort of stuff that's like what you want to write read everything read as omnivorously as you can i mean there's a lot of i read a lot of poetry i do read a lot of travel but i also read a lot of novels i read a lot of you know for this book i read a lot of science books and things completely outside my scope of not interest, because I'd like to think I'm interested in pretty much everything, but, you know, what I would normally do. Don't kind of, um, don't, you know, uh, paint yourself into a corner where you end up, you know, just, again, being conservative. Be, you know, jump off and be incredibly sort of eclectic about what you do, because, you know, there's so little time. We're all here for such a short time. Why wouldn't you try and see everything and read everything and do everything that you were enthusiastic about? <laughs> do you have a system for cataloging anecdotes or stories or things that you find interesting that you might want to use in a book someday? I, mean, I find this 
to be a big challenge for myself personally, where I'll read something and it's like, oh, I got to remember this. And this ties in with this thing that I think, and this will be a great way to sort of illustrate this point. And then two weeks later, I can't remember sure. <laughs> what it was. Well, that, that, yeah, that's because you've waited two weeks to write it down. Right. Yeah, that's uh, true. Yeah. You just writing it down is that... Yeah, I think it's just that thing is the kind of discipline of it where you think, oh, that would be good. And then you just need to write it down either in the notes on your phone or, you know, I carry around a notebook and a pen or a pencil. And I think it's just getting that getting into that practice of doing it. But as you say, you know, I've written a couple of books now. I've written four books. So I'm kind of into that habit. It's just forming these habits, be it a habit of sitting down at the end of the day and writing a couple of hundred words, whether you want to or not. I think a lot of people make the mistake of thinking they only write when they're, you know, um, they have the kind of... Uh, the creative spark or whatever, yeah. Yeah, but, you know, there's a wonderful quote by Picasso, and he said, inspiration does exist, but it must find you working. <laughs> yeah. So you must, you know... If, but if I only ever wrote when I was inspired, I'd never write, you know? Right. Right. You've got to get with it's, it. It's work. <laughs> right? It's work. Yeah. You've got, to take, you've got to take it seriously and you've got to do it. I'm always inspired the first two minutes and, and then 10 minutes later when the document's still blank, I start to get yeah. a little uninspired and discouraged. <laughs> well, you say that, but you know... You know, you've, you've, you're good at other things, clearly, in that case. You know, you have this wonderful podcast and, you know, you have, you, you're connecting. That's the thing. You've got, your, you've got your people who are your subscribers and all of that. You're doing something. Well, I'm doing something here. I don't know. <laughs> We're having a great conversation. I know that. And that's why I've been hesitant to let you go. But I, I guess I should here. Uh, I, if that's oh, I, okay. I've got to have my dinner in a minute. <laughs> okay. I'm sorry about that. I, I have one more question the other outposts that you want to visit that you haven't made it to yet? Sure. Well, yeah. Um, I'd love to go to Scott's hut in the Antarctic. I think that would be amazing. I'd also, there's St. Kilda, which is an island in the Irish Sea, which was used, I think it was used in um, was it The Last Jedi. It was that one. It was Luke Skywalker. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'm quite interested in that. I think that's an amazing place that's been home to um, pilgrims and poets and various things for years, uh, a long time. I'd love to go to South Georgia, where Shackleton got to with his rearguard action for the transpolar. Um, where else do I want to go? I mean, I'd love to go. I've never been to New Zealand, and I know that there are a number of islands off the coast of New Zealand with amazing lighthouses, similarly with Iceland and the lighthouses around there. Um I'd love to go to um, Sri Lanka. That's somewhere that I'm very interested in going. Um, and the tip of Argentina, um, which is very interesting from the sort of Patagonian point of view of kind of this meeting of two seas and a meeting yeah. of two climates. I'd love to go down there. I mean, I feel that, you know, I can, I could go on for a good 15 minutes. There's a lot of places in the world I'd love to go. But also one of the places I'd really like to go isn't really a place. There's lots of journeys I'd like to make. So I'd love to go on the Trans-Siberian Railway from, you know, through Russia to Japan. That's a big, um, big ambition of mine, you know, and, make, and see the landscape change and, and, and kind of see the world. Yeah, well, that's, I mean, an awesome <laughs> bucket list. Yeah, I mean, I think through the lens of the outposts, it's uh, it's interesting because 
trying to seek out these these more wild places, like you said, add to the journey itself just to get there. And I mean, some of the destinations, as we mentioned in the book, you know, Iceland, you're in the US, Scotland, France, Japan, just name a few, Norway. So um, definitely recommend it. And am I missing any like websites you have or anything? If you want to share anything, uh, now's the time. But Oh, I'm on Twitter. So um, I'm on Twitter as Dan underscore Zep, Z-E-P. Um, and I've got I mean, music is very important to kind of the writing process and everything. And I've put a couple of kind of Spotify playlists up there of music that I was kind of, I heard while traveling for the book and music that I listened to while writing the book. So if people want to go and check that out, I also do a bit of writing for various magazines and they're all kind of detailed on there as well. But I think Twitter is the place to find me. That's great, man. I really enjoyed our conversation today. I hope we get to do uh, another one over yeah, a beer please. somewhere in person or something. Let me know if you come through Norway again. <laughs> I will. Well, thank you very much for having me on. I appreciate your time and good luck with everything. Cheers. Okay, take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. There you have it. Hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I enjoyed having it. Thank you once again to Dan for stopping by the show. Really great book there. So I encourage you to check that out if all that sounded interesting to you. And also, before I give you the shout out and before I give you my favorite wild place on this earth, I want to thank Tortuga Backpacks for supporting today's show. ZeroToTravel.com slash Tortuga. Go to that link and you'll check out all of the backpacks that I recommend. You can get 10% off with the promo code TRAVEL, just the word TRAVEL, when you check out. So you don't need to waste a bunch of time researching, hey, what's the best travel backpack to use? Just go to that link and check these out. And if you get anything over there, you'll get 10% off again with that promo code TRAVEL, just the word TRAVEL. And you'll also be supporting this show because I'm an affiliate for them. And that's because they've been a longtime partner. I dig their stuff and I use their backpacks pretty much every single day of my life, even when I'm not traveling, just around town here where I live. So uh, check them out and thank you once again to Tortuga for supporting today's show. Now, my favorite wild place. Well, this ties in with this shout out I'm about to give to one of you lovely folks in the Zero to Travel Caravan, this listening community. I want to say what's up to Eleanor. How you doing? She's a new listener. And she said, hi, Jason, you're always saying in your podcast, you love hearing from listeners, so hope you don't mind the random email. No, I don't mind the random email, Eleanor. I love the random email. (laughs) I live for the random email. If you guys listen to this, you know. I love hearing from you all. This is a two-way conversation. This is what keeps me going. Anyway, she goes on to say, as the subject line indicates, I love listening to your show. I'm British, but I've been working in Sydney for the last 18 months and worked in Singapore and Dubai before that. Managed to get a fair bit of travel in that time, though you're always constrained by how much leave you have. Turns out we are very spoiled in the UK. You mentioned in your last podcast you had trekked Patagonia. My ultimate hope dream is to take roughly a year off and travel both New Zealand, somewhere I still tragically haven't made it to, and South America, and hiking in Patagonia is at the top of my list. Have you done any in-depth podcasts about this experience, or are you planning to? Looks like there's quite a bit of prep traveling around, booking campsites, and so on. Thanks a lot. Look forward to the next episode. Thank you. Eleanor, and funny you mention because my favorite wild place that I've been, and maybe it's not so wild in the sense that you're not going to see tourists there, although certainly if you get into the backcountry and far enough anywhere, you're not going to see as many tourists, but is Patagonia, particularly Argentinian Patagonia. It's just wild because 
it it looks wild. The land looks wild. Everything about that area feels wild to me and a bit untamed. You can just see trees that are windblown that just have been for years or decades or maybe even centuries in some cases. I'm not sure. And there's a ruggedness about some of the people you meet and see from the cowboys that live down there to the adventure guides to the guy I saw sailing around and through the tip of South America off the coast of Ushuaia who just looked like this salty sailor with a big gray beard and was in the thick of just battling some big ocean waves. And it's just like, man, that's that guy's on an adventure over there. (laughs) So you're just surrounded by this feeling of wildness and adventure and nature. And it's such a beautiful place. And I have done a podcast about this a long time ago, but you can search in the archives and you can always look on zero to travel.com. There's a search function there and uh, you can also get to a page where we have a list of every show. But of course, in any podcast feed, you can find all the shows I've published and I've done a whole trekking week, a whole themed week on trekking. I think the first episode I actually recorded as a solo show when I wasn't used to recording on my own. I often do interviews and I really enjoy those dialogues, but sometimes I do shows that are just me and I've done some of those. And if you've been listening for a while, you know that, but they're not always the easiest to stand and talk to a microphone by yourself. And I remember just kind of being nervous and thinking, all right, I'm going to do this Patagonia show by myself. And I just got a good bottle of Malbec red wine (laughs) from Argentina. And yeah, I had a glass or two and I was like, all right, I'm ready to record this show. You can find that in the archives, Eleanor, and uh, certainly a lot of tips in that particular episode about trekking in Patagonia, one of my favorite wild places on earth. What's one of your favorite wild places on earth? Hit me on email, jason at zerototravel.com. Hit me on Twitter at zerototravel. Let me know what wild means to you. Let me know what places have impacted you, what physical spaces or destinations have impacted you in some of the ways we discussed today. We'd love to hear from you. And on that note, before I let you go, I'm going to leave you with a quote. And it's a beautiful one from Henry David Thoreau. He said, We need the tonic of wildness. At the same time that we are earnest to explore and learn all things, we require that all things be mysterious and unexplorable, that land and sea be indefinitely wild, unsurveyed and unfathomed by us because unfathomable. We can never have enough of nature. Thanks again for listening and I will see you next time, my friends. Have a great day wherever you are. Cheers. This podcast has been brought to you by ZeroToTravel.com. Ideas and advice to make your travel dreams a reality. 